Good morning, everyone. Thank you. Um, I'm just going to um, mention how we're podcasting um, this series. So every so often I'm going to say something to our uh, people who are listening on podcasts. Don't think I've gone mad if I suddenly start to refer to the people at home. And they're not imaginary people in my head. They're really out there. Uh, and um, because we are unable to broadcast the music as part of the podcast for copyright reasons, I just need to explain some things to them. So I think, bearing in mind that we're at the start of a long journey, we should just um, have a little bit of quiet and a little bit of contemplation. So let's just quieten our minds and still our hearts. These are some words from Jane Williams' book, The Art of Advent, which is the Archbishop of York's Advent book for 2018. In Advent, as we prepare for the birth of Jesus, we are encouraged to remember that this event has been in preparation for much longer than the few weeks of Advent. The Son of God becomes incarnate, living with his people in the birth of Jesus Christ, but God has not been distant and uninterested in the world before this. On the contrary, Jesus is the truth of the eternal character of God, who has been drawing people into relationship since creation began. And let's pray together. Blessed are you, Sovereign Lord, God of our ancestors. To you be praise and glory for ever. You called the patriarchs to live by the light of faith and to journey in the hope of your promised fulfilment. May we be obedient to your call and be ready and watchful to receive your Christ, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. For you are our light and our salvation. Amen. So I hope you will have a handout with you. There'll be one of these each week. Um, I'll tell you when we're going to refer to it exactly, but everything should be in the right order. And it's a list of the texts that we're going to listen to, and actually one other text which I'm reading. And on the back page, there's a playlist, um, which shows you the recordings that I'm listening to. Obviously, you're entirely at liberty to listen to any recordings that you like, but um, if you want some suggestion, if you want a suggestion, that's there. So we're here to consider this great season of Advent. I would take issue with the famous song and say that Advent, rather than Christmas, really is the most wonderful time of the year. It's a time when we sit and we wait for Christ's coming, and as we sit and wait, we think, we consider, we self-examine, and we remember we're quite good at remembering by now. We've just had a whole month of remembrance. Remember, remember the 5th of November. We've had Remembrance Sunday. November is the month of remembrance. And I would suggest that we need to carry this into December. And that that indeed is particularly what this, the four themes that we're looking at this, uh, this season are all about. 
There's a carol, which I've printed out for you, the first one you've got, to remember, O Thou Man, which I'm not going to sing to you. I'm going to reserve that for later, just to warn you. Um, Remember Adam's fall, O Thou Man, O Thou Man. Remember Adam's fall from heaven to hell. Remember Adam's fall, how we were condemned all to hell perpetual, therefore to dwell. Remember God's goodness, O thou man, O thou man. Remember God's goodness and promise made. Remember God's goodness, how his only son he sent our sins for to redress. Be not afraid. It's a nice little link there. It's the shepherds who are told not to be not afraid when they're presented with the glory of God. And in this carol, which is very Adventy, we are being told not to be afraid as well. Because we should go through a self-examination, and self-examination is difficult sometimes. Uh, and you shouldn't be afraid about it. We have to consider where we've come from and where we're going. It's also a time when we consider not only Christ's first coming on earth, but also his second coming, and in doing so, we consider our own mortality, our own death, which opens the gate to a new life in Christ. You may be unaware, but you know um, the great song, Have yourself a merry little Christmas, um, make the yuletide gay, carries on. That's not the original version of that song. The original version is, have yourself a merry little Christmas, it may be your last. It's a bit miserable, isn't it? But actually, from an Advent perspective, it's quite a useful thing. It's quite a useful thing to think about. It is about change. It's about revolution, Advent. You're getting ready for something cataclysmic. Um, And what we do at Christmas is we focus down on this very small thing, this tiny child in the manger comes right down but we need not to lose the cosmic nature of what's actually going on here and I think the crucial thing for me is to remember that we're part of a narrative a great narrative and this narrative encompasses our human brilliance and our human failings it's a narrative which sees us rise and fall it sees us being tested and failing it sees us being tested and succeeding and ultimately it carries the promise of the indescribable joy of redemption, of knowing that our life is not simply what we eat and what we drink, but what we are in our essence, spiritual beings in partnership with God through Jesus Christ. So in these four sessions that form the St Paul's Advent course for 2018, I'm going to examine the traditional themes of the patriarchs, the prophets, St John the Baptist, and the Virgin Mary, and to try and trace various elements of this narrative of redemption. I'm going to amplify these things uh, by looking at music from various periods and various composers. Now, all art forms can be enlightening to us in any journey, but especially, I would say, in the Christian journey, because they can provide a different perspective, and they often open up a very different emotional response from us. I'll talk about the pieces which we're going to hear, and then I'll ask you to listen to them. And I will encourage you to have thoughts and ask questions. Please, please, don't forget that the response of the listener is as important as the responses of the composer or the performer. It's a trinity. You know, the piece might be brilliant. If no one listens to it, it doesn't exist. It doesn't really exist in the psyche. The reaction is everything. Um, Don't be embarrassed if you're not used to doing this. 
Um, you can simply articulate with adjectives. Uh, if you know, if you want to say, I mean, and be very basic. Is it fast? Is it slow? Is it loud? Is it soft? Is it high or is it low? Do I like it or don't I? We have a rule with the choristers here that they can't say they don't like a piece until they've performed it, not not rehearsed it, performed it three times. So I would say the same thing to you. Thank you, sir, for your support. Um, I would say the same thing to you. If you find it hard, that's okay. That's absolutely okay. If I play you a piece which sounds a bit discordant, or you think, oh, I don't like that very much, give it another go. I promise I won't make you listen to anything that's, that's any more than three hours. No. <laughs> So I'm also hoping as we go through this that I might give you some tools that will help you to discuss music, okay, that you feel, uh, feel confident about. So we'll, 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 we'll keep thinking about that. Um, it, it's, I would just say one other thing on this new music thing. Um, I, I'm not actually going to present you in much contemporary, but you may hear some stuff you don't like. People used not to like Beethoven. You know, it was awful. It was terrible, terrible music. He's the mainstay of our traditional classical repertoire now. You know, it's very unusual for people not to like Beethoven. But you know, things change. Once we make friends with music, then uh, we, you know, it, it goes into a different area. Now, we can't know the mind of God, and I wouldn't be arrogant enough to try and tell you about it. And we have no idea, really, if there's going to be any music in heaven. I hope there is, uh, but I don't know who's going to choose it. That's going to be an interesting playlist to put together. I think we can probably sure that God is not some channel-hopping creature who tunes into Evensong at St Paul's, only to find they're doing the discordant St John service by Michael Tippett, and so switches over to Vespers at Westminster Cathedral to get his daily dose of Palestrina. But what we do know is that music is very important to humanity. It's been a part of our lives since the earliest time. Uh, there was a discovery of a flute-like instrument from an archaeological site in the Chinese provenance of Henan, uh, and we can be sure that people over 9,000 years ago were playing and listening to melodies. The Bible is full of it. Uh, Miriam dances before the Lord and plays upon the timbrel once the Israelites have crossed the Red Sea. The Psalms of David, many of them written by hands other than David, of course, are designed for singing and they refer to the playing of instruments, of trumpets and harps, and they express deep sorrow when the Israelites sat down and wept by the waters of Babylon. They hanged their harps on the trees because they couldn't bear to make music anymore. The music had to stop. And when their captors taunted them, one of their best jokes was to say, stand up and sing us one of your songs of Zion. Right, music is there. Composers and performers alike have devoted themselves to the spiritual in music. That can be simply because music is demanded of them. So Mozart at the court of the Archbishop of Salzburg is writing because he's told to write. It could be because they have strong religious feelings, as in the symphonies of Bruckner. Some composers write um, from... Well, let's say they're not always of the highest moral character. 16th century Carlo Gesualdo wrote astonishing music but murdered both his wife and her lover. Some others are not particularly religious. So Vaughan Williams stated that there's no reason why an atheist couldn't write a good mass. And his second wife, Ursula, described him as a cheerful agnostic later on in life. Then again, some composers write out a great devotion, as in the case of the 16th century Spaniard um, Victoria, who became an oratorian priest and who never wrote a single word of secular music, a single note of secular music. 
And, of course, in the most modern age, we have James Macmillan, who is not only a composer, but also, at the moment, a lay Dominican. So why are we looking at music alongside these Advent themes? Well, it's partly because it, it encourages us to come up with powerful emotions. The composer Gustav Holst was very moved to find three men singing the Benedictus of the Bird three-part mass during the horrors of the First World War on, on, on a battlefield, well, just off the battlefield. Uh, and the thing is that we are thinking of the First World War this year. Siegfried Sassoon's poem of 1919, I think, very eloquently captures the power of music when he says, Everyone suddenly burst out singing, and I was filled with such delight as prisoned birds must find in freedom, winging wildly across the white orchards and dark green fields, on, on, and out of sight. Everyone's voice was suddenly lifted, and beauty came like the setting sun. My heart was shaken with tears, and horror drifted away. Oh, but everyone was a bird, and the song was wordless. The singing will never be done. And the reverse side, of course, a dislike of music, or an absence of it, was seen by Shakespeare as a cause for real concern. In Act 5 of The Merchant of Venice, he says, The man that hath no music in himself, nor is not moved with concord of sweet sounds, is fit for treasons, stratagems, and spoils. For those of you who are listening to this as a podcast, sadly we cannot broadcast the pieces which I'm going to play here in the Wren Suite at St Paul's, but I will introduce them and tell you which recordings we're going to play. The listeners with me here have a handout which includes the text that we're going to hear alongside the playlist, and you can get them by contacting the St Paul's Adult Learning Department, and I'll give you the email address for that at the end of this talk. So let's get to the religious bit, because I've been waffling on about music for long enough. So here we are, week one, patriarchs. What is a patriarch? Let's nail this first of all. So if you're being very strict, very strict, the patriarchs are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the term can be used to refer to any of the 20 or so main characters of Genesis who form part of the narratives which are handed down to us. The word is derived from the Greek patriarches, meaning chief or father of a family, a compound of patria, family, and archaean, to rule. Of course, in talking about patriarchs, there's something rather obvious missing. Uh, they're not alone. Patriarchs need matriarchs. Otherwise, the story of humanity would be rather short. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And let's not forget, if God hadn't created the female of the species, then the various creatures filling the world would not have been able to go forth and multiply. So let's get it out there. Male and female are equal and coexisting from the very beginning. Our gender cannot exist in isolation, and without both male and female in our psyche, we are incomplete. So the partners of the patriarchs, Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, and Rachel, and others, are equally, well, they're equally important. They don't figure so often in the narrative, because of, uh, often the, the, what's going on is, is, is talking about individuals, uh, you know, doing one person doing a thing. 
These people, these patriarchs and matriarchs, are the people who show God's eternal and developing relationship with the human race. And in their actions and responses to God's creation, they embody the feelings of love, joy, distress, despair and sin, which we still encounter in our lives today. So I'm going to begin our narrative, our story, at the beginning. This is not once upon a time. Once upon a time is nice and comfortable. It's cosy slippers, fireside, maybe a glass of sherry if you're spoiling yourself. It's infinitely more important than that. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. It's desolate, empty, blank canvas. Chance to get it all right. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. The first day, the dawn of time. Into this creation, the last thing to be added is us, humanity, with our passions and abilities, our selfishness, our failings, our brilliance, everything that makes a human, human. So we're going to listen to our first piece now, and it's In the Beginning by Aaron Copeland. You'll see it on your page one of your handout on the right-hand side. You'll see as I've gone through, I've divided each page into two columns, so you simply go down a column and up the other one. And as you can see from the text, this is quite a long work. It's by the Jewish-American composer Aaron Copeland, and he's working in the 20th century. Um, this piece itself is, is from 1947. I, I may not listen to it all. It's about 17 minutes long. I might not um, play it all to you now just because of time. Um, but I'll see, how, I'll see how we're going. Um, I'll certainly do the first five minutes and the last five minutes. It sets this whole, um, this whole text from the book of Genesis, um, beginning at chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, uh, and goes on to chapter 2, verse 7. It was written for the Harvard University's Symposium on Music Criticism, interestingly. I'm not quite sure what they made of it. Um, it's a piece which, a little bit like, um, a, little bit like a responsory, has various things which define it. So the soloist is used to delineate the days and the various acts of creations which happen on each day. Uh, and there's a sort of chorus which says, and the morning and the evening was the first day, or the second day, or the third day. So everything is in paragraphs. The music begins with very simple textures. It's not, it's not hard. There's a solo at the start, and when the choir comes in, it, it sort of builds up gradually. But as creation becomes more complicated, so the music becomes more complicated. And on the final day, the seventh day, when God rests, Copeland writes music which is rather like a hymn. All of the voices and their words moving at the same time. And it ends in a, in a blaze of glory. So here is the University of Texas chamber singers uh, with James Morrow conducting. It's track 11 on a Natsos CD of American core music. 
Uh, let's have a listen to some. So I'll keep an eye on the time. I might just give you a, a few excerpts, and then we'll talk about it. So I'm just going to I'm just going to pause there. Um, we're about we're about six and a half minutes into that piece, and we got to the fourth day. If you're listening at home, at the end of the fourth day. Now, um, let's, let's actually get on to some patriarchs, shall we? I think it's probably time to get on to some patriarchs. So, Adam and Eve have come into being. They've been created. Uh, they've got the freedom of the Garden of Eden. And we all know this story, don't we? They're not allowed to eat the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. What shall we call this? Shall we call it, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here? Shall we call it Big Brother? What shall we, what shall we call this? It's a test, isn't it? Shall we do, this is social experiment TV, in a sense. You can do anything you want. Let's get a group of children over here. You can do anything you want, but you can't go up those stairs. And then let's just leave them. How long, how long do you think? If they don't know each other, maybe a minute. If they do know each other, as you said, madam, 30 seconds, probably. <laughs> okay, it's, it's a test, and there are tests um, th- that go on throughout this period of the Bible. There's a big, big one, which I'm going to focus on coming up a little bit um, later on. Um, I want you to have a look at the next uh, carol you've got. It's on page three. The Lord at first did Adam make. Uh, this is a uh, carol which uh, we believe to be traditional. It's not collected until 1822 um, in a book by a guy called Davis Gilbert. It's called Some Ancient Christmas Carols. I can't tell you exactly the, its provenance in terms of its timing, how old it is. I suspect, looking at some of these verses, there is some Victorian morality in here. Um, so I can't tell you it's an echt medieval carol. But in his preface, Davis Gilbert writes the following thing. He says, um, he says, The following carols or Christmas songs were chanted to the tunes accompanying them in churches on Christmas Day and in private houses on Christmas Eve throughout the west of England and up to the latter part of the late century. So he's talking about the 18th century there. The editor is desirous of preserving them in their actual forms, however distorted by false grammar or by obscurities, as specimens of times now passed away and religious feelings superseded by others of a different caste. Isn't that sweet? So this is a, this, this, this tune, this is a tune, it's a single melodic line, it has no accompaniment that's written. It may have been accompanied by things in the house. But um, So I'm going to sing a couple of verses to you in a minute. It's quite a catchy, rhythmic tune. I would say it's more designed for the home or the pub or the street than for the church. Uh, and what's, what's actually very good about the two verses I want you to look at, which I'm going to sing to you, which is verse 1 and verse 4. Because 2 and 3 are the story, you know, don't touch the tree. If you touch the tree, it's going to go wrong. Okay, we know that bit. I want to look at verse 1 to, to set the tone. And then verse 4. Um, what is good about all of these carols, and it's, it is a tradition which goes back to the medieval period, so it may be this is much older than I'm, uh, I'm suggesting it might be, um, is that it communicates very complicated theology in a very direct and straightforward way. This is not something the medieval church in particular was very good at. Actually, the Church of England hasn't always been very good at it either. Um, but very complicated theology in simple, understandable terms is brilliant. So here's a couple of verses. So 
What I love about this is that pretty quickly we get to the fall. I, mean, I haven't told you, Adam and Eve take the apple. You know that? Yeah, I'm assuming you know that. They take the apple, they get it wrong. They're tested, they get it wrong. Very quickly, this writer is saying, now, look, pay attention to the goodness of the Lord. His mercy soon he extended. He didn't hang around. Well, you're going to see a slightly different version of that in a few minutes. To restore us and to redeem us from hell, hellish thrall and from death, he sent his own dear son. By verse 4, this is coming in. It's a plan. As far as this writer is concerned, it's a big plan. Okay? And I want immediately to you, for you to turn to the next carol, which is over the page, on page 4. I've printed the uh, original medieval English on the left and a more modern translation on the right. This is Adam Lay Ebounden. Ebounden being an old form of a, um, a past... Uh, a past participle of the verb. Um, this is found in a British Library manuscript, the Sloan Manuscript 2593, uh, and it was collected in this translation you see on the right by Edith Rickhart in 1914. And we're going to listen to a very famous setting of it in a second by Boris Ord, uh, who was the one-time organist of King's College, Cambridge. This is very, very simple, this carol. It's for four voices unaccompanied. It's very short. Uh, it is now, this setting, a regular part of carol services all around the world. But it's the text which I'd say is a real gem. So let's just look at this verse by verse. It, in, according to medieval theology, Adam, is, uh, Adam remains in bonds. Having got it wrong with Eve, she doesn't get mentioned. She gets it really badly in the neck when, when, when the apple gets taken. But it's always Adam who's punished forever. She's there as well. Um, they're supposed to remain in bonds with the other patriarchs, everyone who comes after them, right up until dot, 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 John the Baptist. Um, we need to talk about some art when we get on to John the Baptist in week three. Um, all of them uh, are in bondage until Christ's rising from the dead. Um, this writer refers to it as 4,000 winter. 4,000 winters. It, it, uh, 20,000 million winters, we don't know, a long time. For the medieval mind, 4,000 winters is an unimaginable length of time. That's what he's saying, an unimaginable length of time. And it is winter. It's Narnia. It's Narnia where it's always winter and never Christmas. You know, it's, it's not pleasant. And uh, not enough uh, that he is abounden. In the next sentence, he's bounden again. He's absolutely tied up there. Adam lay bounden. Bounden in a bond. Lots of bees, alliteration. He's stuck there. He cannot get out. There's nothing he can do. 4,000 winter. Thought he not too long. Not unreasonable for what he's done. What is it he's done? It's all for an apple. It's all for an apple. An apple! He's got it wrong because of an apple. He's in bondage for 4,000 years because of an apple. Always for an apple, an apple that he took. To, so you get it twice. Can you believe it? Really? Yes, it's an apple. As Clark has find and written in their book, the medieval people are very keen that we should know this is right, this is true, because it's in a book. Our clerks, our intelligent people, our teachers, our priests, 
um, the people who've written and collated the Bible. It's in a book. We know this happened. However, here's the thing. The second verse tells of the eating of this apple, um, but the nature of the test which Adam and Eve get is not simply about saying, don't eat the apple, don't go up those stairs, I'm going to leave the room, don't go up those stairs, whatever you do. Um, it's about free will. And this is a very important thing that, about God and our relationship with God. God is not a puppet master, and he's not like the gods of the Greeks and the Romans, who will suddenly appear and either tell you to go that way and not that way, or um, will make you do something in order to satisfy their own craven desires or their own narrative. It's about us and our relationship with God. But we have to sign up to it. Adam and Eve make the wrong choice. They get a choice. So the choice is, God says, whatever you do, don't eat that tree. Don't eat the fruit of that tree, because if you do, you'll die. It's a bit like saying to a child, don't eat that berry, because it's poisonous. If you eat it, you're going to be really sick. It's effectively what he's saying. The serpent comes along, having been, depending on your take of this, if you're Milton, if you're John Milton, having been taken over by Satan, John Milton says that the serpent is the most beautiful creature in the Garden of Eden, and he stands upright, and he's beautiful and colourful, and he can talk. He uses his tongue as a tuning fork to make sounds. Um, so, you know, the serpent is a very cool person. Um, the serpent comes along and says, no, 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 you really, you, you know, you really got to eat that fruit, because if you do, your life is going to change forever, and you're never going to believe what it's like. So they have a choice, good and bad, and they choose, as we do so often, to go this way. I know I shouldn't have eaten the two cream cakes I had yesterday, but I did. And I, sat, I stood there in Sainsbury's and thought, I, don't, I shouldn't really do this, but I did. Because we get it wrong sometimes. Um, and God is prepared for us to do that. Now, Adam and Eve often get a rough ride. They get it wrong, and they're punished. But if they don't get it wrong, we can't be allowed to get it right. It's a very important thing, and this is what you come across in verse 3. If the apple hadn't been taken, nay, had the apple taken been, the apple taken being, because we have to say everything twice, a bit like Wagner, you, you just tell people what you're going to do and then you do it. If we hadn't taken the apple, Our Lady, first appearance of Our Lady in this discussion, wouldn't, been, wouldn't have become a heaven's queen. Well, let's, let's assume we don't believe that bit. What they're saying is, if this hadn't happened, Mary wouldn't have had Jesus, Jesus wouldn't have been born and died as a result of which Mary goes to heaven. So they are assuming your knowledge on this point. Okay, they're assuming you know that bit. Then we get, blessed be the time the apple taken was. Uh, it's, it's a really good thing that this happens. Um, therefore we mon sing and we must, we have to sing, Deo gratias, thanks be to God. Uh, here is this very short little carol. I should have said it's performed by New College Oxford, the choir of New College Oxford, with Edward Higginbottom from about 1984, I think. Okay, I'm going to move on because uh, I need to. I would I just do keep your thoughts going, but I'm not going to ask you about them at the moment because I want to get on to our, our big piece. So I need to make sure we've got time to listen to it. Um, it's St. Paul who first refers to Adam uh, as the first human and Christ as the second Adam. And I think this is a really important thing for us, the old and the new, the condemned and the redeemed, um, Adam being of the flesh whilst Christ is of the spirit, 
Adam will get it wrong, and Christ will redeem that wrong. But of course, Adam, regardless of your view of Genesis, whether you think it's narrative or whether you think it's fact, I'm not, I'm not particularly interested in that. Adam represents all of us. Adam and Eve represent humanity, and we get it wrong, and Christ redeems that wrong. I'm going to do another very short piece now, um, just to illustrate this fact to you. It's from the Messiah, Since by Man Came Death. You'll find it on your page, um, um, your page something. It's also on page four, at the bottom there. It's a very short thing. Just to, just to um, reiterate this style. Um, it has two phrases, Since by Man Came Death, and four hours in Adam all die, which are written in the old, what you might call churchy style, the Renaissance style, unaccompanied, four-part singing, hom- homophonic, typical church cadence, goes la, 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 at the end, like all good church pieces do. And when Adam comes along, for as in Adam all die, um, Handel writes an unwritable interval. He writes an augmented fourth. So you go four notes up, one, two, three, four, you make it one, two, three, four. It's hard to sing, so I've just got it wrong there. You make it a bit bigger. You stretch it up by a semitone, an augmented fourth, a fourth which has got bigger, known as the devil in music, il diavolo in musica, unwritable in the medieval and Renaissance periods because it's evil. It can't exist in its own. It has to move. And in response to all these things, Handel writes, by man came also the resurrection of the dead, and even so in Christ shall all be made alive with the orchestra in the new style, the Baroque style, rhythm, punch, unarguable, unstoppable force. Okay, it's the two ideas, Adam and the second Adam, Adam and Christ. And this is um, the Scholar's Baroque Ensemble on a Naxos disc singing this particular chorus. So we move to Abraham and Isaac and a little bit of Jacob. I'm afraid I don't have much time for Jacob. Well, I do have a lot of time for him personally, but I don't have much time today for Jacob. Abraham. <clears throat> Let's deal with Abraham first, first of all. Widely regarded, widely regarded, not just here in the Christian church, as the father of the Jewish nation. Seen as the perfect servant, one who is faithful to God in all things and who follows his commands. Um, This, as I mentioned at the start, comes from the book of Genesis. Um, Genesis chapter 11 is where Abraham first turns up, although at that stage his name is is Abram, A-B-R-A-M. We don't know that much about him in his early life. We know that he's a shepherd. We know he comes from Ur in Mesopotamia, which is modern-day Iraq. And we know that his family moves. And we know his father is called Terah. Uh, who I think, by, by legend, used to sell um, little um, images of gods, if I remember that correctly, which is ironic, really, when you think about it, when we're going to talk about Abraham. Because um, in a time when so many people were clinging to these gods, this, this, uh, the polytheistic idea, many, many gods, not just one god, um, Abraham uh, is said to have been searching for something else. He was searching for truth, searching for something more real. And he's the first person to take hold of this idea that that there is one God. So as far as his colleagues are concerned, he's a bit mad, I suspect. You know, I mean, one God, really? But, you know, I have to pray for this God for my harvest, and I have to pray for this God for my family, and I have to pray to this God for something else. That's their daily routine. Here's somebody saying, no, 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 no. One. One God. One God and only one God. This one God who doesn't actually show himself to Abraham, 
at any stage, gets told in chapter 12 of Genesis to leave his home and country. And, and God makes um, three promises to Abraham. Um, he talks about um, a relationship with God. He talks about numerous descendants. And he talks about land. He talks about a promised land. He says, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. This is God speaking. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. This is Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Now, there's an immediate big problem with this promise, this set of promises. Because Abraham and his wife, Sarai, who's later become Sarah, are older and they don't have any children. They're told to leave their homeland for a God they've only encountered in terms of spirituality and meditation. He gets no signs or miracles, Abraham. There's no burning bush for Abraham. There's, no, there's nothing. He doesn't have a relationship like Adam and Eve have with God. They don't, it doesn't come face to face with him in that sense. He's got no scripture. There's no traditions on which to draw. He has to place his hope in a God who doesn't even have a name at this stage. doesn't have a name. As a result of this faith, God changes Abraham's name to Abraham, which means father of the people. And through this long journey, Abraham and Sarah encounter many tests of faith before they finally do arrive at the promised land of, of Canaan, thus fulfilling one of God's promises. Now, there is an ultimate test for Abraham, and it's utterly terrifying, and we can understand it very clearly in our modern day. One of the tests that God asks Abraham to do is in Genesis chapter 22, and he says, I want you to sacrifice to me your only son, Isaac. I mean, just think about it. I mean, really think about it, to put yourself in that position. You're hearing voices. Everyone else thinks you're mad. You've just packed up your whole family, moved to this place in the middle of nowhere, and they said, well, well done, yeah, these voices are going, well done, okay, now we need you to sacrifice your only son. It's pretty terrible. And God has always already promised Abraham that his descendants will be great on the earth. Well, if there isn't any Isaac, then there isn't going to be any descendants. And the chances, you know, for Abraham and Sarah of conception, I mean, the chances of it happening in the first place are remarkable. Chances of it happening for a second time, they may well think are utterly impossible. So we're going to listen in its entirety now to Abraham and Isaac by Benjamin Britten. This is a piece written in 1952, and you've got the whole text here, starting on page five. It's written in 1952 for performance by Peter Pears and the contralto Kathleen Ferrier. Not, a, not an alto, not a male alto, not a boy alto. It's written for a woman, Kathleen Ferrier. Britain chooses not to use the authorised version of the Bible. That's, that's not uncommon for him. Britain likes going to church mainly because that's what people do on a Sunday and he lives in Alborough and he likes doing what people do. Um, he's not always very comfortable with the, um, with, with the, with the theology of um, the church. Uh, so he uses the lively dialogue and rich medieval language of the Chester mystery plays. And the mystery plays are important because a bit like the carols that I was talking about earlier, they, co they communicate complicated theology in an understandable way. So you will hear Isaac getting in a bit of a state, and you will hear Abraham getting very upset and expressing how much he doesn't want to do this. 
In some ways, this canticle that Britain's written remember, uh, resembles an opera scene. There's two characters. Abraham is the tenor. Uh, the Isaac is the contralto or alto. Uh, the piano, there is a piano which accompanies it. The voice of God, uh, which speaks at the beginning and at the end, is created by both the voices singing together with a sort of arpeggiated figure from the piano. So it's like a restative in an opera. A restative, a restative are those bits which um, communicate narrative rather than um, think about narrative, rather than, dis- rather than describing what's happening, they tell you what they actually... Uh, sorry, rather than meditating on what's happening, the restative actually um, tells you what's happening. It's very clever because the tenor voice has to sing much quieter because he's working with the alto. The alto is at the bottom of her range. The tenor is much higher. So the tenor has to sing quieter so that they blend. And it creates a very otherworldly, um, rather objective, um, unemotional voice of God. The text is full of human passion. You're going to see it as, as we go through it. You'll see Abraham's conflict between his desire to be faithful and his love for his son. That breaketh to my heart even in three, he says at one point. Not in two, just broken your heart. You've broken it into three pieces. A bit like Adam, he's bound and abandoned. It's in three, not two. It's never going to go back together again. Um, and there's the most astonishingly tender moment when, when he beckons Isaac to come over. He says, come hither, my child. Thou art so sweet. Thou must be bound both hands and feet. It's, it's a completely unnecessary <coughs> detail, but it makes it real to us. Isaac, un- entirely understandably, doesn't understand why on earth this is happening. As he sets out on the journey, you'll notice there's a lilting piano movement underneath to suggest that they're on a journey. It's a bit like you know camels moving up and down. He reminds his father that he's ever obedient he does exactly what he's told. But when Abraham tells him he's to be sacrificed, he goes absolutely bananas. And he tries every trick that a young person would do. He says, you know, if, I, if I've got something wrong, just beat me, okay? Don't, you don't have to kill me. If I, tell me what it is I've done wrong, and you can beat me with a birch. And he even goes on to say, if my mother was here, this wouldn't be happening. He even appeals to his mother in absence. But when Isaac realises it's God's will... He chooses, he chooses to submit to his father. So Abraham obeys God, and Isaac obeys God and his father. This is faith. This is amazing faith. And of course, there's the link-up that in the same way Abraham is prepared to sacrifice Isaac, God is prepared to sacrifice his own son. So although I'm not going to impute human emotions to God, it gets, gives you some idea of how painful and how momentous it is because God is sacrificing his own son. The whole story is about trust. God has made promises to Abraham, and Abraham believes those promises with every fibre of his body. He will sacrifice Isaac because he knows unequivocally that God is good. In that sense, Abraham stands in the opposite corner to Adam. Adam was asked to do something rather, rather easy. Don't eat that apple. He, he failed. Abraham is asked to do something really hard. Sacrifice and give me your only son. And he passes. In the final lines of this canticle, the writer, the anonymous writer of the mystery cycle, reminds us that this was really all about us. Let us be obedient. If we are as obedient as Abraham, we will be dwelling with him in great glory forever and ever. So I'm going to play this to you now, and then we'll have a brief time to discuss it. This is um, the late, great Philip Langridge.
uh, with uh, Jean Rigby and Stuart Bedford, a great friend of Benjamin Britten, uh, on a Naxos recording. Right, well, if you don't do anything else with your advent, other than having just sat here and listened to that, you'll be fine. Um, I have to tell you, as a tenor, I used to sing this piece quite a lot. It's incredibly emotional to sing this piece. It really, really is. You, you are actually living, living the emotion, and it doesn't. The singing, I have to say, and the, and the piano playing doesn't come much better than that. You know, there's no, there's no frills, there's no funny techniques. Two great voices singing absolutely brilliantly. Um, I mean, I has, I've, I've slightly gone over my time, so I'm going to I'm going to bump Mendelssohn and Isaac and Jacob into next week because because the Mendelssohn's from Elijah, who's a prophet, you might have noticed. So he will fit very well into next week. And I've not left enough time for you to discuss this now, but and it's a huge piece. But any reactions to what you've just heard? Um, so thank you very much for your attention. I'm just going to give out whilst I've got this thing running the um, email address for our friends on the podcast. Um, if you want to have the playlist and the, um, the handout, which contains the texts, which is adult learning, all one word, adult learning, at St. Paul's Cathedral, which is also one word, dot org, dot uk. And you can always follow this great department, headed up by Elizabeth Foy, on Twitter by using the um, handle at St. Paul's Learning. So do come back next week. Uh, we will pick up, um, we'll just finish off Isaac and Jacob, and we'll go straight on into the prophets. And you'll see that even those lot are all related to the big narrative. Thank you very much.